But I feel like I was a giant antenna in the world and I was able to sense and take in everything. And it it really serves me creatively, being able to be to feel all these um, vibes, signals, whatever you want to call them in the universe. I can channel that into my work, whether it's art, design, or music. Personally, emotionally, and relationally, it can be a problem because then I'm just too sensitive. Rodney Durso is founder of Artbridge, a New York nonprofit that empowers emerging artists to transform New York's ubiquitous construction scaffolding into large-scale art exhibits. In part one of this two-parter, we cover Rodney growing up in Long Island to a creative artistic mother and a father who came from the wrong side of the tracks, feeling materially abundant while living in a landscape of emotional scarcity. And as an Italian in a predominantly Jewish Long Island culture, We discuss his educational experiences, his early entrepreneurial ventures, his musical influences and ambitions, before he transitioned his life focus to advertising, film production, before being drawn into design and learning from design icon Milton Glaser, and finally forming his full-service design and branding agency in New York in 1999, before integration was a commonly used term. In part two, we focus on Rodney's second life as an artist and social entrepreneur forming Artbridge in 2009 to give emerging artists unprecedented exposure by exhibiting their work on construction, scaffolding and buildings across the city. Rodney discusses his mission and the impact this innovative initiative has had on the lives of underrepresented artists and how serendipity led to its scaling internationally. We also explore art as therapy, procrastination, curiosity, and his process of creation, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the candor, generosity of spirit, and artistic social enterprise of Rodney Durso. Okay, Rodney, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Hey, Mark. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. Yes. If you've listened to any of the other podcasts uh, before we explore our guests, if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, in that case, that's fine. So we always start by exploring... Before we get into exploring our guest's life, in your case, a life in design and subsequently as an artist, and also as an NGO as well, which is interesting, we'll come and talk about, we always like to understand more about your childhood, in particularly the impact of your parents and the direction that you took. From what I can see, you grew up, I thought it was in New York, but I think you went to school outside of New York. Yeah, I grew up not far from the city in Long Island, which is, you know, maybe 35 minutes from the city. Uh, went to elementary, you know, middle school and high school there. Uh, later then went to college in New England, Rhode Island, Boston, then eventually in London. So talk to me about your parents and the role that they played. It's funny you say that because, you know, a lot of my, uh, it's not that pretty, you know, it's not that pretty. Hmm. Well, what can I say? Okay, so, you know, my parents shouldn't have been married, basically. And they both admitted that, and they eventually got divorced, which was a good idea. Um, it's not uncommon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but they stayed together for 26 years, which is, you know, way too long. In fact, I once said to my mom, you know, were you happily married? And of course, she said no. And she said, the first three years were great. And I said, why is that? She goes, because we were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, actually was a, uh, a little foreshadowing for the rest of their relationship. It could have been which, the last three years drunk as well. Yeah, probably. it could have been, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, my dad was an alcoholic, which, which, which was not good. And ended up really ruining their marriage and consequently our family in a lot of ways. But to try to keep it uh, not so dark, I'll tell you that my, um, my mom was an artist. Uh, she studied uh, fine art, Indiana University. She was a painter. She actually went to school with Alex, Alex Katz. And she was, she was very talented. In fact, when she passed away three years ago, 
we spent a lot of time digging through her uh, and organizing her, her art, stuff that I'd never seen before. I mean, she was very prolific and very talented. Um, she also was a musician. She played the piano. Uh, in fact, she bought a piano in our house and insisted the three of us take lessons, me, my brother, and my sister. And I took, starting five years old, and I was the only one that stuck. You know, everybody, no one else was interested. They did it because they had to. And um, I stuck. So I've been playing the piano since I'm five. Not professionally. You know, some every once in a while, I dip into it a little bit professionally, but it's mostly just uh, for fun. My dad was uh, from the wrong side of the tracks. They were you know, completely opposite. My mom was very well educated. Her family was upper middle income. Eventually, they ended up having some real wealth. But my dad came from Staten Island. He used to steal cars. He uh, joined the Navy. He dropped out of high school. Um, he was a bad boy, you know, so... Uh, colorful life. Colorful life and had a big tattoo and all this stuff, you know. Yeah, Staten Island was very sketchy. It's what, still, did, what did he do for his profession well, when he left the Navy and stopped stealing cars? Yeah, exactly, after that. Well, I think he bought a dump truck or something, as the story goes, and he became kind of a landscaper, gardener, landscaper, digging driveways and that kind of stuff. And that's how he met my mom. He ended up showed up on my mom's. Uh, my mom and my grandfather worked together for a while. Well, my mom got out of college and started working in advertising right away because of her fine art background. That was the most logical thing to do is work in advertising. So it was almost like that madman era, and we found lots of fun uh, pieces of her work when we were when we were emptying her apartment. Um, she worked on the Hellman's mayonnaise account. Uh, oh, wow. she, she worked on this. Which yeah. agency? Uh, you know, I don't I know. She worked for the agent. I'm sorry. She worked for the company for Craft, I guess. Oh, right. Kraft, it would be, yeah. 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 So we found drawings and, you know, all this old kind of, you know, I studied graphic design and these are all the old materials, you know, vellum and, and um, you know, all the stuff you used to use pre-computer, right? Oh, it so must have been fascinating. It was, it was really great because yeah. it reminded me of my high school, I mean, my college um, assignments, you know, looking at her work from profession, her professional work on Hellman's Mayonnaise looked kind of like my college uh, assignments, but... So she did that for a while. Yes. Yeah, so your father on the wrong side of the tracks, yes. and your mother, and your mother as yeah. a fine artist. Exactly. And uh, they ended up. So he ended up working. With, yeah. Go ahead. No, with with your two siblings. Yeah, five of us. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. what were brother, younger brother, older, uh, older sister, brother, older brother, older brother, brother, younger sister, and uh, my brother and I couldn't be more different. You know. He's a Republican, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm not. I'll leave it at that. Well, yeah. And uh, yeah, couldn't be more different. He's uh, into sports and all this kind of stuff, um, and I'm not. But you know what? Thanksgiving After... must be a fun time <laughs> at the moment for you. <laughs> well, you definitely can't talk about politics, for sure. Uh-huh. You definitely... or, or sport. <laughs> or, yeah, no, that, that sport doesn't bother me. It just doesn't interest me, you know. But I'll tell you what I learned from my brother is it, I think it made me a very competitive person because I always had to keep up. You know, I always had to keep up with him and his friends. They were always older and cooler and, you know, listened to great music. And in fact, I, I think I would attribute all of my curiosity about music to my brother because he always brought in great stuff into the house, you know. And um, he's three and a half years older. And so when I was like, I don't know, 12, I was listening to Queen and Led Zeppelin and The Grateful always, Dead. My sister was older than me, 10 years older than me. Uh-huh. And I had the benefit of, of that her album yeah. collection. Right, that's so it. it. always gives you that little edge over everyone else in your class. Really did, you know. I um, I was going to all the cool concerts. You know, my first concert was, yes, at Madison Square Garden. I was like, I don't know, maybe 413 or something. So he turned me on to music that way. He also influenced my musical 
career or whatever you want to call it, my musical interest, you know? I was a piano player and I was, you know, studying like Handel and all these little sonata type of things. And he turned me on to Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And if you know those names, Emerson, Lake yeah. and Palmer. So this guy, Keith Emerson, was a, a monster at the keyboard, you know? And that, my brain went straight for that. So I ended up collecting Moog synthesizers and organs and all this stuff. I grew my hair like longer than that. And, uh, <laughs> and then I was in rock bands. So I was in rock bands from the age of 13 to 20, something like that. That must have been something else to be able to say. I was in a rock band in New York City in what, the 70s? In the 70s. Well, like I said, we grew up on Long Island, so I was really out there. Right? Wow. I was really out there. But I was playing with people older than me because I had like the cool keyboards and stuff. And uh, I was also always taller and more mature than everybody. Like when I was 13, I had a size 12 foot, you know, and I was <laughs> shaving. It was it was not a pretty scene, but but whatever, that's how it went. Then I went to, uh, one summer I did the Berkeley College of Music. It's um, like a high school per, you know, type of program. And um, so, yeah, I was really into music for a while, for sure. And in fact, I thought that that's, that was going to be like my trajectory was music. Mm. And, uh, and then I discovered girls and all went out the window. <laughs> Doesn't always. <laughs> yes. when, um, when you were at that phase before, you, I don't know, when, well, what age did you start playing in bands? Uh, maybe 13, 13. 14. So before that, presumably with an older brother that was into music, what was play and like in Long Island? What sort of freedom did you have to explore? And what did, how did your home life feel to you? Was it safe? Did it feel, you so obviously it was, a, it was a troublesome marriage. You must have experienced some of that turbulence. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's something I explore all the time. Um, it definitely was a, a turbulent household. It felt chaotic. It felt unsafe at times. And I disappeared into my music and my art you know i would close the, the bedroom door and blast my eight track player and you know listening to whatever those great bands were in the 70s i was into kiss and queen and you know james taylor and this type of stuff but you went yeah. into the great thin lizzy boys are back in town yeah, okay. sure of course <laughs> scottish band right uh, irish irish yeah. okay uh, fill in it great fill, fill there you go it, yeah and uh, the Grateful Dead, and and yes, yeah, so I was listening to stuff that was like his ear, more like his age group. Um, but yeah, that was my escape was disappearing into my music and my art. So obviously, that did influence your worldview and looking because as soon as you ha you're immersed in the world of music, you see the world beyond the town and city that you live in. Yeah, I was, I, I did, of course, and um, yeah, I was convinced I was going to be the rock star. You know, I. That's, that was kind of my trajectory at the time, is going in that in that direction. And uh, yeah, all my weekends, for example, were in band practice, and we did the battle of the bands and all that th kind of thing. And I was, you know, there were like two keyboard players in the, in the neighborhood. I was one of them. And there was always this little bit of a competition between us, you know, who had the latest gear and who could play the fastest licks and, and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so it was a bit of an escape. Yeah, a bit of an escape. But I think it served me, you know, because my, my brain was wired for that, you know. As a creative person, my brain was wired for that. So I took right to it. You know, that was a... So presumably the major influences in your life at that point were musicians, musical icons of that era. Yeah. Uh, like this this one particular keyboard player, this guy, Keith Emerson, I really, um, you know, his style was a mix of classical music and rock. I guess it's called prog, right? And uh, his use of... Um, 
this interval called fourths. I don't know if you know a keyboard, you know, the interval between the A and the C. The C and the A is a, is a fourth. And it was not common, in, in, definitely not in pop music. In pop music, it's like one, three, five. That's like the pop chord. It's like, dung, C major, blah, you know. And then you use this interval of four, it's dissonant. And his music had a lot of this dissonant tones to it. Um, I, I would call it dissonant or abstract in a way. Uh, I also think, that, also think that influenced my interest in abstract art, you know. Plus, my mom was constantly feeding us, feeding me art, going to museums and such. Loved Miro and Kandinsky and Clay and these kind of artists and Calder and not so much Picasso, but yeah, Picasso was in there. And so that combination of the, the, the visual vocabulary and the musical vocabulary really wired me for interest in abstractions. Mm. Why do you think it was you and not your brother that went down that path? I, I think he was too busy, you know, partying and, you know, playing football and hanging out with his friends and causing trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was the middle child, so I was more at home. You know, when he was out doing, you know, um, football practice, I was at the piano. So I don't know. I think we're just different. And then your sister? My sister was, um, my sister was always getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> my brother was causing trouble. My sister was getting in trouble. And she's creative too. Look, her, eventually her career, she became a interior designer and then opened a bakery, this great bakery called Three Tarts in Chelsea, which was up for 15 years or so. She cl- wow. closed, closed it just recently. You know, the, the rent was about to double, and she's like, I've had it. <laughs> the usual story in this yeah, crazy basically, city. Your lease is yeah. up, and you're done. So where did she go? So she just uh, she's here in Manhattan, and we're all actually here in Manhattan. And um, she just recently got married, and I think she's really just enjoying being um, a mom, a stepmom. And it's the first time she's had a break in life. You know, It's the first time she's able to like take a breath and be like, I'm not working right now. I'm going to be a stepmom. And I think she's loving it making the cakes for the kids. Yeah. Are there any defining memories or moments from your childhood that you look back on, either fondly or that trouble you that you have to examine? Yeah. Oh, believe me, I've I've been in therapy my whole life. (laughs) I've examined this stuff to death, and I'm not sure how deep you want to get into it. But, you know, a lot of the stuff was traumatic, and um, a lot of it was around my dad's drinking and my parents, you know, basically screaming at each other. So, um, you know, I've, uh, yeah, there were some dark moments, yeah. Do you think that's affected your art? It's. I'll tell you what it's affected. It's affected the way I connect to my emotions. And um, sometimes I picture, I, I consider myself just a giant antenna in the world. You know, um, I love the saying that, uh, you know, children of trauma don't have um, memories. They have symptoms, you know. And that's totally, that's me. You know, that's me. So, um, yeah. But I feel like I was a giant antenna in the world. And I was able to sense and take in everything. And it it really serves me creatively. You know, um, being able to be, to feel all these um, vibes, signals, whatever you want to call them in the universe, I can channel that into my work, whether it's art, design, or music. Personally, emotionally, and relationally, it can be a problem because then I'm just too sensitive. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose there's uh, that fine line, sensitivity and empathy, to be able to be empathetic to, whether it be clients, particularly if you're in the design and agency world, it's a it's a very powerful characteristic to have. Yeah, in fact, I feel like that's why I was so, let's put it in air quotes, successful with my design is that I really enjoyed listening, you know, and, and asking questions. And in fact, some clients would be like, why are you asking me this particular question? I'm like, because I want the whole picture. You know, I, I, I taught at Parsons for a while, and I would say that, I would say to my students, like, the design process, you know, I picture this, um, like this giant coffee filter, you know, and you're putting everything in the top. You're dumping it all in there, you know, wholeheartedly throwing in all the data, let's call it. And then out of the bottom drips these little, 
these little drops of like, you know, ideas and design and hopefully brilliance, you know, but you've got to throw it all in that pile, you know, in order to distill it down. That's um, a great metaphor. Yeah. I, I, that, that's, I think, how it works for me. We recently started asking um, clients, <laughs> we started asking <laughs> guests <laughs> about did they live with scarcity or abundance? It sounds to me like there was an element, an aspect of your childhood that was very abundant with the way your mother guided you and influenced you in music, but maybe the scarcity of a traditional home life. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, um, no, for sure. Abundance materially, we were abundant. We had whatever we needed, you know, clothes, food, shelter, vacations, summer homes, all that stuff. Yeah, so we were materially abundant. The scarcity was the emotional landscape, you know? And um, yeah, so I feel like, look, I've been recovering from that my whole life. And, but it really has gotten me in touch with, um, with my own emotional landscape. So I think it's really served me. And I feel, in fact, I feel grateful for that because I know people who, you know, are less in touch with that and uh, it's really served me. So I think there's a balance of scarcity and abundance. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, talk about your education. What mm. was school like? for the young Rodney. Yeah. I was always the tallest one, which was always a little awkward, you know. I, I was always six feet tall, basically, <laughs> and everyone else was still, you know, these little peeps, pipsqueaks. But um, I wasn't great at school. Nope, I wasn't great at school. I was, I was good at art, you know, and I was good at music. I was always in, like, the orchestra. You know, they, they recruited me to play the stand-up bass because I was tall. They tried to recruit me to play basketball because I thought I could play, but I could not. I was a total spaz. <laughs> And so that was a, that was a disaster. But stand-up bass, I did well. Um, they recruited me to play trombone because of my long arms, <laughs> which also not Talk about being typecast. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like he's tall, he's got long arms. We're going to do it. But you know, I made some great friends, and uh, we had some really, I had some real creative outlets. We started these crazy clubs, and I made up, we made up languages. And in fact, uh, my teacher, my fifth grade teacher, called in my friend's parents. I said, you know, Rodney uh, has started this club, and they're all speaking a different language, and it's really (laughs) getting getting in the way (laughs) of our learning. So, you know, I was my creativity got got the best of me and my friends. So this was Lawrence High School. Yeah, uh, junior. Well, yeah, Uh, Lawrence High School was nine, uh, ten, eleven, and twelve. Then there was middle school, and the first, you know, first sixth grade, um, one through six, was uh, a public school. Okay. And what town was it? What year you mean? No, what town? Oh, what town? I'm sorry. Um, Long Island. Yeah, I went, to Long, I went to Lawrence High School where the town was Lawrence. I grew up in a town called North Woodmere. The grouping is called the Five Towns. It has kind of an infamous uh, reputation, unfortunately. You know, the kids, uh, 11th and 12th grade kids were getting brand new, you know, Camaros. And back then that was a big deal. So there was a lot of money in our town. And um but you know, it's uh, it's changed dramatically now. Now it's now it's very um, very re- religious. They've torn down a lot of houses and built temples, and uh, some of the schools have even closed. Just yeah, there's a lot of private yeshiva type schools now. So anyway, it's changed dramatically. But when I grew up, it was different. In fact, I was one of the only non-Jews. One of my, I feel like I'm. Um, feel like I'm um, Jewish by association. You know, I'm really, I'm Italian, okay? So, but having all of my Jewish friends was was amazing because on Jewish holidays, we we wouldn't go to school, we'd go to temple and, um, and uh, there'd be seders. And I mean, I've done all kind of the Jewish traditional wow. stuff. I've I've held chuppahs at weddings, if you know what that yeah. is. I've so signed you- ketubah at a wedding also. Um, you know, you- Barakato, I don't know, Adahinu, I know how to do Your that. Your mother and father were both Italian. Both, yeah. Oh yeah, both Italian. You know, we're very- that must have been very strange to be immersed in, sort of in Jewish Judaism. culture. 
You know what? It just was. I don't know. Those were all my good friends. Uh-huh. It didn't. It, it was interesting to me. Yeah. You know, it was interesting to me. It's like, oh, what is this? <laughs> uh, it didn't affect your diet, though. No, no. Look, I love the bagels and locks. Forget it. Yeah. That was, that's my favorite <laughs> stuff, you know? But uh, but I also think Judaism is, um, to me, it's a little bit more, uh, makes more sense to me. I mean, you know, we had some some religion in our lives. You know, we we went to uh, church on the major holidays, Easter and stuff, well, you know, Ash Wednesday. I did um, catechism on Sundays for a while. Um, but Judaism, to me, makes more sense. It's like a little more academic and just a little bit more like, you know, Catholicism has the dogma and like the symbolism and all that stuff. And which the guilt. I, yeah, and the guilt. And I don't really go for that. But Judaism seems a little bit more, um, I don't know, I can, I can deal with that a little bit more. So maybe... Maybe in another life, I was Jew- I was Jewish. Well, I guess as a kid, I was Jewish, kind of. All right. So, what about teachers and mentors at school? Are there any particular memorable individuals that affected the direction you took? I don't know. I'm not sure how they affected. You know, I had a sixth grade teacher who everyone was afraid to get, and we were all kind of on the edge of our seats, wondering if we were going to get Mrs. Cass, the name K-A-S, Mrs. Cass. And... And if you got Mrs. Cass, it was like everyone was afraid of her. And for some reason, I got her, by the way. And for some reason, she loved me. And I don't know. I'm not sure if that affected my career or my, you know, my art or creative choices. But I remember being feeling really um, encouraged by her, feeling really encouraged by her. Then in college, no, I don't know. I can't say that I had a really great teacher. After college, I, so I studied advertising at Boston. I went to University of Rhode Island well, for two years. Before, we, oh. uh, let me just yeah, ask because you were dead set on becoming a, a rock star. You were in mu- music. You were yes. obviously, clearly, that was a path. Yes. And art as well was another path you were on at school. More, more music. So where did the music suddenly get dropped and you suddenly shifted mm. uh, focus to uh, design, advertising, yeah. and communications? Well, you know, I, I say jokingly, but I, I met my first girlfriend, you know, whatever, however, however old I was, 16 or so. And, uh, and I got really, you know, diverted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had some great hippie parents. You know, her, her her parents owned a jewelry design company. Her dad drove a purple Rolls Royce. He had a giant handlebar mustache. And they smoked pot, you know, in front of us. And they were hippies. I mean, he, he wore a giant fur coat. It was kind of cool, you know. And for my, you know... Growing up in my family, which is relatively conservative. How does a know? hippie end up with a Rolls Royce? <laughs> I guess they did really well in the yeah. jewelry design business. Wow. And um, so I was really kind of influenced by them. I mean, I think in a, certainly in a good way. And they, they were very loving. And they were a Jewish family. And I did all those traditions with them as well. But I don't know, somewhere along there, I just started to slowly step out of music. So by the time I got to college, I kind of had dropped it. Yeah. I also had started a whole business when I, I don't even know if I talked about it on my first interview with you is, um, in 11th, 10th or 11th grade. I can't remember. I started my first, uh, my first entrepreneurial, you know, thing was called Captain Quick. I lived on Long Island where no restaurants delivered except pizza places. Right. And it was suburbs. So, you know, to get to the real restaurants was a 10, 15 minute drive. And I had this idea I hatched this idea one night at the kitchen table with my mom. We're like, we're sitting around and we wanted food delivery. And I'm like, and she looks at me, she goes, you should start a food delivery service. I'm like, really? I was like, okay. So I started this thing. And this is my first actually branding assignment, let's call it. So I came up with the name Captain Quick. I drew the logo. This is my first like, you know, logo assignment. And this character wore a red cape and a red mask. <laughs> and uh, and I actually started this business. And uh, and then I employed my friends, and we used to use CB radios, if you remember those. Brilliant, yeah. Because there were no cell phones. And I had just gotten my driver's license. So we would we approached a bunch of restaurants, the upscale restaurants that didn't deliver, and we asked them for a cut of whatever the 
the bill was. So we would get a cut on that end. Then we'd get a service charge on the other end. And we ended up making money. And we became kind of little celebrities because we ran around with capes and masks on. And when we would deliver your food, you'd, this guy would show up, me, would show yeah. up with like a red mask yeah. and a cape and a Captain Quick shirt. And I'd hand you, you know, in one hand, I'd have a, you know, a filet mignon. In the other hand, I'd have a, a burger and uh-huh. whatever. Because we'd go around and collect food from all the places. So um, brilliant. <laughs> this is way before Seamless and way before Grubhub. I should have stayed in that business, right? Yeah. But that also you kind of... cornered the market on masks as well. That, that's Obviously right. quite timely at the moment. And I have, some photo, I have some photos of that that are yeah. just hilarious. But I think that also... I guess that got in my way of my music also. That That's just like all of a sudden was very interesting to me. And for two years, like throughout 11th and 12th grade, I did that. And I suppose, yeah, you're sort of making money, realizing that you can do it on your own. That's right. It must have been the entrepreneur. Had a driver's license. Entrepreneurial bug. That's right. Yeah, it really was the beginning of that, I think. And to this day, every once in a while, someone on Facebook will post a picture of Captain Quick, me or one of my buddies, wearing a cape. And every, and there's like hundreds of people that I don't even forgot about. And they could be dead. It's like, oh my God, I forgot about Captain Quick. Bring it back. Yeah, bring it back, right? Yeah. Um, so from Captain Quick, yeah. you still decided to study. and You went to Boston University to do communications. Yeah. What was your ambition at that point in time? Yeah. Well, first I went to the University of Rhode Island for two years. That was my first experience, freshman and sophomore year. And I went there because no one in my high school had gone there, I don't think. And it was also very rural and beautiful, big campus experience, old school campus experience. And then I just ran out of, um, there wasn't enough to do there for me. I was looking for, you know, um, it just wasn't enough. And unless you were a nursing major or a marketing and business major, there wasn't much to do. Um, also had a a girlfriend for those two years and that turned out disaster. So I was like, I got to get out of here. I need the big city. So I went to Boston. And they had a school of communications, which was excellent. Um, studied advertising. And um, that's when I really found found myself in a way. They have something called AdLab. I don't know if it still exists, but it's basically a, a nonprofit agency owned by the university and you get real clients. So I was an art director with a real client. The YMCA of Boston was my client. And we did real work for them, you know. Hey, mom must have been proud. Uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think so, you know. Um, yeah, probably. So um, that was super fun. And then I I got a little bit into film production. Um, I remember actually being at an agency. I was doing a, an internship in an ad agency. And they were, sh- they were sending out storyboards to a production company. And I was looking at the storyboards going like, wait, I want to do that. That looks more interesting. Cameras and lights and stuff. So I switched interns, internships and I got the internship at a video production, a film production house and became a production assistant on TV commercials. And I did that for my whole senior year. So where did the pivot to design and setting up your own business come from? Mm. So I did a quick stint. I did a semester in London, also television commercial production. Came back to New York, did a little bit of that again. And then I started taking classes at School of Visual Arts, and that's, I think, where it started. Um, took some great classes with Milton Glaser, one of the great... Ah, oh, that must have been fantastic. One of the great design did he, did he do his uh, Design for Life exercise where he makes you write letters to your future self? Or he no, might that's not been, funny. He might not have been doing it at that time. Maybe not. I've done that in some other course. But no, not that. But we, you know, really good assignments. And uh, I'll never forget this one assignment. He totally just crushed me. Is It was a, whatever the tea was. It was a box of tea of some kind. And he goes, um, oh, he said, pick a product and redesign it. And he gave us no instruction at all. He said, pick a product and redesign it. So I picked, um, I don't know, some kind of tea or whatever. And I redesigned it beyond recognition, meaning like it looked absolutely nothing like the original product. And I brought it in. He just reamed me in front of the class. He's like, you just lost your entire your entire audience. 
He's like, no one knows what this is. No one's going to recognize it in the store. He's like, you've just lost your whole audience. You failed. <laughs> and he's right. It was a really valuable lesson. I never really thought about that. I was so I was so excited to impress uh-huh. Milton Glaser <laughs> that I totally blew it. But um, but that class was great. Another one by Paul Davis, a really talented illustrator, teacher, great, really very successful guy, and um, a typographer, a type uh, designer named Ed Benguet. Anyway, so that's where I started to really get into design. I was taking tons of classes at School of Visual Art, just, um, you know, after, after hours, that type of thing. At that time, did you have a, a goal or an ambition to go it alone and set up your own agency? Or were you just more intent on taking a slightly different direction away from film production? Yeah, I was definitely hooked on design. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. And after a couple of those classes, a handful of those classes, I started to build a portfolio. And then, I don't know, I can't remember exactly the timeline, but I got, um, did I tell you about the Chinese tea company? No. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> we'll see if we have enough time for this one. Well, I'll, I'll yeah. make it quick. Yeah, go on. Um, so I got sick. I had chronic fatigue syndrome, which in the back in those days, people thought, you know, they were like, they don't believe you. They think you're depressed, all this stuff. There were no tests. And I was pretty sick. I was working for my family business um, to make money. Basically, I was living with my mom, commuting into the city, taking these classes at School of Visual Arts, you know, working in film production during the day, let's say. And uh, and then at one point, I was like, Mom, I got to get, I need to move into the city. She's like, well, if you want to work for the family business, I'm like, okay, whatever. So mistakenly, well, it was a good, it was a good education, actually. Worked for the family business, made myself sick just because I just didn't enjoy it. And um, ended up with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is kind of like, um, it's like if you have... There's a name for it we had in the UK. It began with M. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. People used to look at everyone saying, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I'm- no, it's real. Yeah, cytomegalovirus is one of the bugs. Um, it's basically if you have mononucleosis, it's kind of like that thing, but it's sustained. It just, it's chronic, you know, it's chronic fatigue. And uh, yeah, I went through all kinds of interesting treatments. And the reason that it was important to me, at the, important at the time is I was so ready to try just about anything. And I tried all kinds of interesting, weird, offbeat, uh, treatments, intravenous vitamin C drips and crazy tinctures. And so I ended up going to see this Chinese doctor on West Broadway, East Broadway, sorry, and started drinking those horrible tasting teas, you know, with like tarantula legs and stones and twigs and stuff. And I started to feel better. So somehow or another, I, you know, I... That's incredible. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> it was nuts. <laughs> it's really crazy. And this guy barely spoke yeah. English to you too, you know? I go in there every single week. He'd take my pulse. He'd make me a box of sticks and twigs. Go home and boil it. Horrible, horrible tasting stuff. Everyone was laughing at me. They're like, what the heck, you know? But I started to feel better. And this is where like my marketing and brain, marketing brain started to go is like, why can't the rest of us, why can't Americans or New Yorkers go into a health food store and buy this? So I started to conflate all these kind of experiences and like the graphic design and the entrepreneurial and the the tea and blah, blah, blah. So I, I started a tea company. And the the whole idea was to make a palatable version of these horrible Chinese herbal products, teas, right? So I did. I worked with that guy and we made flavors and I tasted them. And then I went to so town. you went to the Chinese guy and oh, yeah. said, I want to do a tea uh-huh. company with yeah. you. Uh-huh. He must have thought, where's this guy coming from basically and he barely spoke english it was just it was a crazy combination but we did it i did it and um and i did all the and this is where like the graph design really took off and the branding because it started from an idea you know this is like a startup conversation too like people say how do you start businesses i'm like you just start is this after your tea experience with milton glazer 
Yeah, maybe around, it might have been around the same something time. Something quite ironic sense. about yeah. it, isn't it? <laughs> it probably is probably around the same time. It makes sense that it would be. But, you know, conflating all these ideas and interest and stuff, and uh, I came up with this whole line of tea. You know, he did the product development part more or less, and I did all the design and branding, and it was called uh, Organic Planet. And back then, organic in itself was not a uh, testable thing. It was still just starting to come up. So I named it Organic Planet and I did all the branding of the photograph. I mean, I have some gorgeous photographs of the products. But so the interesting thing is, um, I just, back then you could do this. I walked into Whole Foods and there were no Whole Foods on the East Coast. So I flew to California, um, went to a big natural trade show and then drove up and down the coast with a with a suitcase full of these prototypes. You know, I literally was, I don't know, 26 maybe, I don't know. <laughs> walked right into Whole Foods, you know, like, hi, look at this. Wow. And back then you could do that. And they took and they gave me orders. Yeah, each store would have its buyer. Yeah. yeah. You can't do that anymore. Anyway, long story short, that lasted three or four years. I had my products in 300 stores and it was a success to some extent. But it was a really great lesson in how to start a business and, um, and what doesn't work also. <laughs> Didn't quite work. So where did it, where did it all go wrong? Well, here, here's... The, there, the Chinese yeah, there, there <laughs> guy... Were, Disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, we ended up switching to a, an importer in San Francisco because that's where all the product comes in from East China. And um, what ended up happening is pretty interesting and weird. You know, that those herbs are treated with, um, I forgot the name of the substance, they're treated with something, not chemicals. Because, you know, the Chinese couldn't actually afford the chemical disinfectant, so they used something else. I forgot what it was called. But um, what it didn't kill is the larvae of any kind of insects that were in the stuff. So... At somewhere in the middle of this process or project, stores would call me and they say, I think there's some living things in your tea box. I'm like, no, no, that's not possible. And then, then one of them opened up and like these moths flew out of the box. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, wow. That was the end of the business. That was the end of the business. So, you know, slowly yeah. but surely in year three or four, everyone started to ship their products back and they're like, sorry, we want our money's back. There are bugs in your tea. In fact, there are bugs all over our store. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then I went in 1996. 1996, I got into a... Um, terrible car accident. It was kind of around the same exact time. And it just like crushed me almost literally. And uh, so I was out, totally out of commission for six months or a year. So the combination of both those events, like, all right, I'm done, I'm done with this business. So that's when you decided to focus on your design yeah, and communications. So, yeah, exactly. So after that experience, you know, I looked at what I had done at that point and uh, I looked at, you know, the, the satisfaction that I got out of creating that entire brand for the tea product. I was like, oh, I'm good at that. I can do this. I'm a copywriter. I'm a designer. I'm blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I took that as my first, you know, portfolio piece and went and looked for a client. Okay. So you set up an, an agency called Stormhouse Partners. Yes. In 1999. Yeah. 98, 99. What yeah. was uh, that experience like in New York? Just I mean, around the beginning of the dot-com yeah, right. bubble bursting. Yeah. I think it had just burst, right? Um, your time. Exactly. Well, it's interesting that... But as they often say, starting businesses at that sort of time is usually the best. I think it was because I, I very quickly got a bunch of clients. A couple of things, you know, back then, now it's totally, you know, now the vernacular is every agency kind of does everything. Everyone calls themselves the 360 branding agency. You know, I was doing that in 1998 and no one, people didn't understand. They're like, wait, are you a web design agency or are you a package design agency? Or are you a brand? Yeah, actually, no one used the word brand. In fact, when I would say that to clients, they're like, "Wait, what? Are you, what is that? What are you saying?" So it's interesting that now everybody, you know, calls themselves a brand consultant because it's it's um, it was not really used in the vernacular back then. But 
so back then I, I had this holistic view because that's exactly what I did for Natural Planet for the organic tea company. That's exactly what I did is I had looked at the whole picture and we did every little tidbit, every little touch point. So when I found clients, I was like, that's my specialty is I can do the whole 360, right? And, you know, getting clients was like any, it's like getting clients now. It's the same, you know, <laughs> knocking on doors, sending around your book or your website address or, you know, going to meetings. Um, but uh, no, it went, it went well. And eventually I think towards the end I had, you know, eight, eight or so employees and a million dollar budget. And so no, it went well when, um, yeah. I, I really, I, I flourished. I really flourished. Where was the office? Uh, Chelsea, West Chelsea. And at that point, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I remember I was, uh, I think it was around, yeah, it was great. I was working around oh, that time okay. back in London, then also went to San Francisco just after 2000. But people weren't, I mean, obviously everyone was talking about digital and the emergence of the, or, or the web, let's so digital. That's right. But, most agencies, even the networks, were struggling to work out what to do with integration. That's right. And the issue with um, uh, different profit centers, trying to work out who's going to do what, everyone trying to take a leadership position. There was a hierarchy um, between who owns the brand uh, strategy over who owns the execution. You could obviously be so small and nimble, you could sidestep all that. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, my, I, I never got to that next level where the clients were big national clients. Never happened. I think my specialty was more boutique upstart companies, products. You know, we had this one, um, this one group of podiatrists that didn't want to practice anymore, and they wanted to launch a line of products called Tripod Labs, So, um, which was a, a great client because they basically had nothing. It was tabula rasa. It's like, we've got nothing. We have an idea. We have a budget. So we created the entire thing, which was really, really great. Again, like a total 360 experience. But yeah, that was the beginning of like web version 1.0, right? And, um, but, you know, I was never a programmer. I just knew how to art direct and design. So I was like, do that, move that there. Type is too big, type is too small. You know, I want to, when you click this, I want this to happen. And during that period, were you, were you thinking about your, your passion, your interest in art? Or was this something you did, did were you doing it in your spare time? No, I wasn't at all, actually. No, I never picked up a paintbrush till 2006, really. Yeah, didn't really think about it at all. I mean, I had made art as a kid, but as an adult, I never did. But I heard you say that you were burnt out. So those, oh, I was. those six, <laughs> yes. seven years. Yeah. Was it I just was. the intensity of working with small, demanding clients? It was a combination of things. You know, first, when you have the, the buck stops with me, you know what that's like. You know, you're responsible for the, the payroll and all that stuff. And you know, managing a group of eight people, it's like having a kindergarten class sometimes, you know, it's a lot of work and you've got to be adept at a lot of things. I also had a, a toxic client, I'm sorry, a toxic employee, which I didn't recognize at the time. And I was too young to really understand what to do about it. So I just let it go. He was trying to sleep with my business manager who was married. I mean, it was a disaster, you know, and I just kind of, instead of shutting it down and or straightening it out, I should say, instead of straightening it out, I kind of just lived with it and it really, it, it took me down. Um, and also I was just, I was burnt out. Look, you've got to like payroll, keep the lights on, get new clients. But the part that I really loved was the creative direction. That's what I, that's, that's what I really loved. And that's what I was good at. So, but by the end, yeah, I was exhausted. And I, uh, I didn't know, you know, it was, it was either like take one big giant step with a big chunk of money and do the next, whatever. I didn't know what, actually I actually had a few business development people. I was trying to get them to help me re rework things, but I just ran out of steam. Mm. And if you had got a national client, 
there wouldn't be any looking back and you probably would have burnt <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, it would have burnt out the, the next eventually. year or something, yeah. So so on that point, when you decided to shut down the business, that must have been quite a tough decision to make, even being burnt out and not just saying, like, I'm going to step back for a few months, take a break. Yeah. What Did you have any any sense at that point what you were going to do going forward? Yeah, well, I kind of, you know, I, I picture this big knob, like I kind of turned it down slowly, like I stopped looking for clients I let a bunch of employees go. I kept my assistant. I kept one designer. And I kept my main client with these podiatrists, these tripod lab guys who were doing very well. So that kept me busy. And as I did that, I started to um, I started to paint. You know, I moved the office. Uh, I closed the office and moved the back to my apartment where I'd started years earlier. And so I was kind of working part-time for this one client. And uh, I gave the rest of the clients to a friend of mine, designer, and I said, look, just give me a cut for the next two years. Give me 20% for the next two years. You can have my clients. And she did. We'll leave part one there. Come back tomorrow for part two. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.